Sprouta is a global ecosystem of the very best experts and solution providers within people, performance, and culture. Companies like CultureAmp, VegaFactor, XOWorks, and many more ready to help you solve your toughest organizational challenges. Every strategic partner is chosen for their deep expertise within their fields and is supercharged by the Sprouta ecosystem. The result? You have a place to go for solutions that are holistic, impactful, and sustainable. No more fragmented transformation or trade-offs. Find solutions that are purpose-fit for your needs. Visit Sprouta.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Humanity Works Podcast. I'm Culture Craig and I am so glad to have you with us. Today, I am joined by Corn Chang, who is the head of people and organizational development at an organization called Grab. Grab is Southeast Asia's biggest ride-hailing and food delivery company. And in December of 2021, Grab was listed on NASDAQ for a record 40 billion US dollars. So this is no small organization and it's fair to say that Corn's job is a pretty big one. So I've been aware of Corn and the incredible work that both he and Grab are doing when it comes to building Culture First Workplace, both from the work that we've done with him at CultureAmp, but also from a strong reputation among those in the people and culture space, which was even more the reason I was looking forward to finally getting to know him better and dig into the work that they're doing. That said, I was really surprised and excited to learn something about him that I didn't know prior to our conversation, which is that we share a unique experience in that we're both military veterans. Now. I don't often come across veterans in the people and culture space, so this was a pleasant surprise. My military experience played a big role in how I think about and approach culture. So when I learned that Korn was also a veteran, I couldn't wait to learn more about how this influenced his journey and compare notes around how this shaped both of our perspectives. Now, aside from sharing notes on being veterans, we also discussed the relationship between leader and employee and how both are responsible in the employee's development rethinking what play means at work and how this concept of total motivation has influenced both of our journeys. We dug into a concept that he talks about as moments that matter and how these moments can have a big impact on how employees and employers relate to one another. And finally, we had a really interesting conversation around the power of fear and how fear can both be a negative and a positive factor in relating to employees. In exactly the same conversation I had last night, uh, that same leader shared with me that they, they have a saying in their, their traditional mother tongue, that once a fear is shared, you only bear half, right? You only bear and, half. And, yeah. One, once you share that with someone else, then you only bear half that fear or that anxiety. And I thought that was such a great reminder. Um, so I think that's on us as leaders to, to call it out, to give a voice to it, allow them to speak about it freely. So I can assure you that if you're somebody that thinks about or is passionate about creating healthier work environments for people, you will absolutely walk away from this conversation inspired and with a few things that you can put into action right away, both personally and at your organization. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Three, two, one. Corn, so happy you're here with us. Thank you so much for taking the time and agreeing to to join us for the Humanity Works podcast. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Craig. And thanks for having me. Um, real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I know the team's been excited. I've been excited. Listen, a lot of people probably don't know who you are. So maybe a little bit about who you are, both some, some background, personal and professional, just kind of catch us up. So... First thing about me, I, I'm a husband, I'm a father, father to a three-year-old. So I'm, I'm right smack in the, the stage of receiving a lot of whys, a never-ending series of whys. <laughs> I, I think then more professionally, I, I work for Grab right now. Um, I lead the people and organizational development function. Before that, I was a consultant for about a decade. Um, and then before that, I spent some time in the military, uh, being, being a Singaporean. So that, that's kind of been my career, if you will. I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to be a global citizen, actually. So I was born, educated in Singapore, did, did my military service in Singapore, went to college in Singapore. Um, but I was very fortunate after that to, to have joined McKinsey uh, out of college in Singapore um, and then had the opportunity to move to Sydney, which was my first real overseas stint for work. Spent, I think, four, four and a half years there before moving on to Zurich to see a very different part of the world and then moving back to Singapore when, when my wife and I um, got pregnant. So, so that's been, been my journey and it's, it's one that I've been very 
thankful for the opportunity to see many different parts of the world outside of a very small Singapore. Can you connect the dots a little bit to how you ended up you know, here at Grab and the work that you're doing today? Yeah, it was not a straight journey. <laughs> so in Singapore, you decide what to study in college just as you're leaving junior college. And in between junior college and college, um, for males at least, you have to do national service or military service. So I was a 16-year-old boy who really enjoyed studying economics in junior college. And graduating from junior college, I decided, well, I really enjoyed this topic. Let me, let me pursue that further. So I applied to study economics in, in college. And then I went to national service. That opened my eyes a lot to, to many other things. And one of the biggest things that I learned there was about leadership and the, the influence, the impact that great leaders have on the culture, on the performance of the team, of the organization that they lead versus um, leaders who, who weren't as high performing. And that, that stuck with me. So when I, when I finished military service and I entered college, I'm grateful that I actually didn't do well in economics. I pretty much crashed and burned in my first year of college studying economics because I realized it was so different to, to what I was studying at the junior college level. And I really struggled with some of the underlying assumptions of economics at the college level. And I started to think about what, what could I study instead, <laughs> instead of economics. I thought I was passionate for it. I thought I would do well at it. Um, clearly, I'm not. So maybe it's time to to think about what could I do differently instead. And that's where the military experience stuck with me and led me to pursue a completely different degree in organizational behavior. That's the path I decided to then pursue my career in. So graduating from college with a degree in organizational behavior, I, I joined McKinsey, which led me down you know, a decade of consulting work in the organizational space, which then also led me to grab. I judge. It's really great. The gifts in life that don't always present themselves as gifts. I don't know what it was like to go through that for you to, I mean, from what I imagine you're, you're pretty successful and to have that crash and burn. Um, but sometimes to just see life as embracing those things that, you know, look at the trajectory and how that turned out. And I think to others listening too, to remember that sometimes a failure is not a failure. It's just a moment in time that's helping to redirect us. Um, and I think it's really important. I'm really appreciative that you shared that. Absolutely, Craig. And, and I think on reflection, it also struck me that a lot of times we're, we're told to pursue our passions. And, and that's what I tried to do um, with economics. It, it was just such a great reminder that sometimes what we are passionate for, we might not be perfectly suited for. And that's okay. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, on economics, I still, I still read about it. I still enjoy learning all about it. But I, I no longer pursue it as, as, you know, my formal studies or my formal career. And, and that's okay. It's okay. I play music. I play guitar. And I think when I was younger, I thought, wouldn't that be great to be a professional musician? And there was a point in life where it's like, I still play guitar. I still love it. Yeah. It was just, it's not my, it might not be my career. And maybe in some ways that was the gift too. So, but there's another part of your story that I have to go to because uh, this is a first in the, in the podcast. And that is you and I share something um, I think is unique. We're both military veterans. I was in the United States Air Force. I uh, spent four years in the Air Force. And I pull a lot on my experience in the military into my work today. I think the big thing for me is one of the things that I learned was that we, we talk about culture a lot. And I think it gets tossed around as a very soft, fuzzy thing or the you know ping pong table, whatever it may be. But what I learned in the military, and I think I take with it, is a culture is about trying to achieve something and aligning the culture to what you're trying to achieve. You know, and then there is culture in the military. There's culture in our organizations. And you know, in the United States Army, there's the 82nd Airborne Division that can have 70,000 people anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And I think, what culture does that take? That doesn't take everybody has a say and let's be innovative. Yeah. It is about command and control. It is about regiment. It's about training. It's about you know procedure. So I, I've held that really close, especially as I work a lot in the corporate world, in the tech world, where there's a type of culture. And when I met you and learned that you too are a veteran, I just, we had to spend some time on this because 
I don't often get to talk to other veterans about how the military influenced them, how they see culture. So I guess two questions. One is you maybe dig a little bit deeper into the influence of the people because you have some leadership influence there, but also culture and what you take from military into culture, into all the work that you do today. Let me share it share a story that stays with me to today uh, and for a large part shaped who I am and where, where I am. And the main character in the story is not me. The main character in the story is a warrant officer called warrant officer Wong. And so in, in Singapore, imagine this 18 year old boy, that's me standing there, nervous, waiting to enter military service. And so the first place, this boy starts is in basic military training, which is three months of just teaching you about discipline, taking you from a cozy sheltered environment that, that we have in Singapore and taking away all of that creature comforts, mm -hmm. right? Instilling in you that basic discipline. And at the end of, of those three months, you're standing there in the parade square, you're getting the results about where you are to head off to next. And generally there are three main pathways. One, you can go into officer cadet school, Two, you can go into sergeant school or, or what we call suspect in Singapore. And third, you can go straight into the units. Now, as background to that, my father had also served in the military, right? And I think he was one of the pioneering generations in Singapore at the time. And he, he had the aspiration for me to be an officer in the military. And unfortunately, standing there when I, when I received my next vocation um, to, to go to sergeant school, I felt like I had disappointed him or I had failed him. So heading into, into sergeant school, the first thing that, that you have to do is attend an interview with your company commander, in this case with Warren Officer Wong. And so I had no clue what he was about to ask. I remember standing outside the door waiting for my name to be called. And when I went in, he, he looked at me and he went through a whole number of questions, none of which I honestly remember. But the one question I remember her was at the end of the whole interview, he asked, what do you want to achieve out of your time here over the next three months? I have no idea where the courage came from, but the response that I gave him was, I actually don't want to be here. I want to be in officer cadet school. And just looking back, one, I, I can't imagine how hurtful that was to him as a warrant officer to tell him I, I don't want to pursue that path and wanted to be an officer instead. But two, much more importantly, his graciousness and his leadership in responding with, well, if that's what you want, let me help you get there over the next three months. And that was my first experience of just incredible leadership, incredible mentorship, incredible sponsorship. And so for the next three months, he lived up to the commitment. He pushed me harder than anyone has ever <laughs> um, he, he took time, made time to train me. And at the end of that three months, I, I, I was very lucky and blessed to graduate at the top of my cohort and was one of three to make the shift from sergeant school into the officer cadet school. And for all of that, and I, I have him to thank. So that, that, that's just a story of leadership, which links to the second question, even in a highly regimented, highly command and control environment. You have leaders who can create their own culture, who can lead in, in a way of their choosing, which I, I've just found incredibly fascinating. Yeah. I love the story. I love the leadership. And there's another thing I want to call out that I think is important. He could do that because you had the courage to ask for what you wanted. And if you wouldn't have, that may never have happened. And I, I say that because I think this will come up in our conversation that there's a relationship in all of this, both from the leadership. I think sometimes employees look to leaderships to do it for them. And I think there's also the responsibility of all of us and employees to help, you know, craft our own paths, even when it's scary. Yeah. And I think both sides of that story are really powerful. Yeah. It, it, it's really funny, Greg. I, I was having a conversation um, yesterday evening with a, a very senior leader of another organization. And he was sharing how someone had distilled for him what leadership essentially is. It is helping others and asking for help. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think you are so right. It, it, the, the courage to ask for help, to be open, to share where you want to go, get others involved in, in helping you create that path there. That's often something that we, 
we don't do enough of. Yeah. And then find ourselves frustrated. We're not getting what we want. And, you know, I think the first is to get figure out where you want to go. And if where you want to go is a title or recognition, or you can get off path pretty quickly. So you get your degree, you decide you're, you're going to pivot into organizational uh, behavior. Consult. Why this work? What is it about the work that really inspires you or, or drives you? There's so many things about it that drive, drive me and, and just motivate me. I think the first one is that this work at its core is about people mm -hmm. and humanity is about people civilizations are about people the organization is 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 nothing more than a construct of people the opportunity the ability to work with people to shape how we can bring a very diverse group of people together to work together as one to do something more than what they individually could have done themselves that's fascinating and that's exciting. Mm -hmm. By nature, people are different. There is no one-size-fits-all playbook around people. So that makes the work refreshing every day. It, it's different yeah. every day. <laughs> you can almost never get bored <laughs> in this work. Um, and, and, and that, again, is incredibly rewarding. Yeah. For those listening, you know, as much as you're able to share about your work, but talk about your role at Grab and the work that you do. I'm, I'm thankful I have a lot of very fun parts of HR to work with. So, so there are three main pillars of, of the role. The first is performance and culture. And in a way, I think of them as two sides of the same coin. On one hand, we are working to drive greater performance. On the other hand, everything to, we do to drive performance needs to build, shape, and strengthen culture. Similarly on culture, right? It's not just about improving the culture towards, I think, as, as you pointed out, Greg, at the start, improving culture towards performance. So, so that's the first pillar. The second pillar is learning and development. The third one is around engagement and inclusion. So that's around how, how do we create real day-to-day -day engagement of grabbers? How do we, as we do that, create an environment where it is inclusive, one where every grabber can feel they can bring their best selves, they can do their best work in grab. And then, of course, there's a, a lot of collaboration across those three pillars. That's the work that I lead and, and that I have the privilege and joy of, mm. of doing. I love how you put culture and performance on the two sides of that coin. I think a lot of organizations think about the culture and they think about their performance. And even as you're talking... We think a lot at Culture Amp about this idea of outcome factors, right? So when we run an engagement survey, that's the outcome factor. What we're doing is trying to look at what are the things that drive that. We should be going for that. And when you said that, I thought to myself, really, performance is almost the outcome factor of culture. Culture is the inputs that will create performance versus we can do all kind. We can pull all kinds of levers to get performance, but the most sustainable is culture. But I just want you to spend a little more time on that because I think it's really fascinating. Talk to me about the relationship between culture and performance. I think the best way I can describe it is. It's one that is constantly reinforcing or constantly dysfunctional towards each other. The, the relationship between performance and culture is either mutually reinforcing mm -hmm. towards better. So it's either spiraling upwards mm -hmm. or it's spiraling downwards where they are dysfunctional towards each other. And what I mean by that is if you work on both at the same time in alignment, you're going to get performance and culture that reinforces each other for the better. If you work on them as separate or in a way that is misaligned to each other, you're going to get a very dysfunctional outcome <laughs> where either you get incredible performance and very poor culture, or you get high performance that embeds low culture. Mm -hmm. Think of cases where, where companies might have pushed for certain targets and, and driven the organization so hard just on that performance. And without, without the right culture in place, to, to hold the bar, the performance is one that is actually negative. Wells Fargo comes to mind, right, as, as an example around that. And that's what I mean, where you need to drive both as reinforcing to each other um, and don't allow them to be misaligned to each other. That, that just results in dysfunction and dysfunctional performance. It's interesting you bring up Wells Fargo. I've thought about that a lot, but it, it hit home recently. I met a woman who went to college and was very excited about banking. And she went through all these different companies looking for her internship and she landed at Wells Fargo. And this is probably 10 or 15 years ago. 
And she said it was the most progressive culture. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And she got there and she was so excited. And then over the years, that transition, and a lot of it was not really where she was working. Where I'm going with that, that was really powerful for me was after that all unfolded, like how hurt and the shame that she felt. And even in her job search, like scared to say that. And it really made me sad because she, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to, to, to do anything on Wells Fargo. I think they've, wherever they are in their journey, just to remember the impact. I was really struck by how hurt she was and that this company that she was so attracted to for a culture, if we lose our way, what that can do. And it's not just to your point in the beginning. Yeah. This is about people in the end of the day. Yeah. And it's also a reminder, culture requires conscious ongoing effort. It's easy to think sometimes that, oh, we've created a great culture and then forget about it, right? We don't, we don't tend to it enough. Like anything else, if you if you don't pay enough attention to it, you don't continuously build that muscle, it, it softens, it weakens, it disintegrates. And so even an organization that has a really strong culture, that requires constant effort to keep up. Now, the third pillar, we have to talk about this for a minute, what you said was around engagement. So I'd love for the the audience to hear your thoughts. How do you think about engagement and you know how do you approach that inside your organization? It's a really interesting one. I remember as a kid, and my dad used to work for, at that time, what was called ESSO today, ExxonMobil. And I remember what engagement looked like as a kid. It, each year, they would run a annual family day. Right? They would gather the families of all the employees. They would, for example, bring the whole family out to the zoo. And it would be paid for by the company. Everyone has a great time. And that used to be what engagement looked like. Mm -hmm. If you ask my dad, he remembers that day fondly, but that's about it. <laughs> There's no long-lasting engagement effect beyond that throughout the rest of the year, the other 200 or so days that he works for the company in that year, other than that one day where he feels really great and, and proud and happy about the company. And so the, the approach that we've been trying to take at Grab around engagement is focusing not on one-off engagement, but focusing on the everyday experience of grabbers to create engagement. And the way we do that is by working on a few things. One, we look at what can we do to deepen and strengthen the bonds between grabbers as well as between grab and grabbers. Because in the end, for, for us, we believe fundamentally that engagement is about the bonds that they are. If the bond that exists is one that is transactional, you won't get deep, real engagement. But if the bonds that you create are one that is part of a social fabric, then you get real engagement. So for us, that's a core, core part of it. What can we do and what are we doing to create stronger bonds between grab and grabbers? Um, that, that's number one. Number two, then alongside that is what are we doing to remove the day-to-day -day frustrations of people? So on one hand, you want to deepen the bonds of our grabbers. On the other hand, you want to take away the things that just irritate, irk, annoy, frustrate them every single day. On one side, you're trying to amp up mm. <laughs> engagement. On the other side, you're trying to reduce disengagement. And a lot of times, that comes from just day-to-day -day frustrating things. So you know, the easiest I think about when I first joined was how difficult it used to be to apply for leave, right? Just simple thing like applying for annual leave. And if something like that was frustrating for grabbers, it's going to be very hard to create engagement. <laughs> and then the third part of it, which ties in also to inclusion is, if we want to create real long-lasting engagement, we need to create an environment where people feel included and they feel safe. They feel like they, they can be themselves. They can bring their best selves, their best work. So that, that's the third part for us around engagement and inclusion. How do we create that space for people? So, so that's how we're tackling engagement and inclusion in part. It's funny, as we go through this conversation, I definitely uh, felt that we have these, these interesting things in common. And one is, I think, a shared interest slash passion for a concept called TOMO. It was based off of a Prime to Perform by uh, Lindsay McGregor and Neil Doshi. It's come up before in this podcast. Uh, I've read a lot of books. I've seen a lot of things. I've learned a lot of models, but this one really stuck with me. And I think that's that's something we share so I would love for you to maybe tell everybody a little bit about this concept of Tomo um, that, that um, the people over at Vega Factor have created. The way I think about it fundamentally is because this work is about people. The work is about getting people 
to do something, right? Whatever action outcome that you want. And the way to get there is through motivation. So when I read about Tomo, that, that stuck with me because it helped me understand and create a frame as well as the, provide the language for how to think about motivation, how to, how to unpack that and then work on it. And Tomo for me brought that all together to help me understand that, well, you can motivate performance or some types of performance at least through pressure whether that pressure is through economic pressure around monetary rewards. It can be around emotional pressure. For some people, that might be around the titles that they receive, right? The, the social standing that they get from that. There are these types of pressures that can be used to motivate. And it helped me understand that that gets you to a certain level of performance. Anything beyond that, however, you need to rely on motivation from play, purpose, and potential, not motivation from pressure. And that, for me, was a real unlock. Um, to help me see that whole picture, see all the different motivating levers, and then understand now where to focus. Where do we need to change how we do certain things that might have in the past been creating a lot of emotional pressure or might have been creating economic pressure? How do we move from that and focus a lot more on creating play, purpose, potential, and motivating people through that? Yeah, that was well, I, so nice to hear other people speak about this, you've clearly given it a lot of thought. And yeah, I think it was the same for me. I loved how they have used data and research to back that up. And I often think, you know, and also I try not to, to put a lot of judgment that we all have probably leveraged all of those in our lives in different ways. I think the, the emotional economic or inertia is the third one are the easy ones, you know, if we're stressed out, if we're, yeah. they're also like empty carbs, they burn fast. You yeah. can get outcomes, but you're going to, you're going to burn stuff out where, play purpose and potential are a little more of the healthy, sustainable ones, but they're more difficult. And, but they're also going to get that long-term adaptability and people that are creative and, and are thinking outside the box and thinking about the company. I also, so as we've talked about, you know, and for the listeners, TOMO stands for total motivation. The, the top three play purpose and potential, which research says are the biggest drivers of adaptive performance and the kind of performance we're looking for more and more in our organizations is particularly these days. But what I thought the most important was they have a whole equation on how you measure it and that play in the equation is double the impact of all the others. And that was pretty powerful for me. I think a message I had in my career a lot early on was, Craig, you can't just have fun. Like, like something's bad, play's bad. And I think it reframed it for me of let's define what play means. And personally, I'm happy I stuck with what made me happy because I feel like I'm playing all the time and I have a wonderful career. And, but that framework, I think, was an aha moment for me. Be like, it's okay. And almost having that to fall back on to share with others. Like, we can create play and we can have fun in our work. And you've spoken to me a lot about that. So let's just spend a minute there because I think it's something that needs to be de debunked a bit. This idea of play and fun and, and how it belongs, what it is in the, in, in the workplace. Yeah. So that that's such a great point. I think, especially coming from a tech company, Play is not about the foosball table that is available. It is not about all of the fun things that people generally think of in a, in a tech company um, that they see in the office space. Play is about the work. It's about whether I, as the individual, am enjoying the work. Am I learning from it? And that is just the biggest factor. If I think about myself and what I shared earlier about what gets me going every day in this, it is, is the play of the work. It is that it's new, it's novel. Every single day, it's a different circumstance. It's a different context because of, of people and how every single person is different. It is about the, the learning. Every day, you're learning more about how people work. How, how do they work together? How not? It's that continuous learning in the role. It is the enjoyment of the work itself that creates play. No one's going to stay around in a terrible job where they don't learn, they don't grow, that they don't enjoy just for the foosball table. Foosball? Yeah. That, that's, that's not play at the workplace. Well, they might stay for a month or so, but it, it, it won't be sustainable. In the end, people do want to enjoy, enjoy their work. We spend so much of our time, of our waking lives at work. 
it, it ought to be it something to be. that we really enjoy, that we we learn from, that we are growing in, and that's play. Yeah. When you were talking, it had me think about our CEO, Didier, talks a lot about always remembering what people are giving up to be at work. You know, who, what are they not spending time with? Whether or not our families and, you know, there's a sacrifice to work and it's a trade-off. But to your point, like, let's make it worth something. And Exactly. In all my years of thinking about and supporting organizations to build healthy workplace cultures, some of the work that has stood out to me the most is the work of the amazing people at Vega Factor. At the core of their work is this. Why we work determines how well we work. And they measure it with something they call total motivation, or TOMO for short. Vega Factor combines the science of human motivation and organizational psychology to make change happen. If you want to learn more about TOMO, you can explore Sprouta's activation pack, full of free tools and resources to help you drive impact. Simply visit Sprouta.com forward slash activate. Let's turn now, because I know it's something you think about, uh, diversity in the employee experience. Thoughts, where are you with this? What are some learnings or some ahas that you've had in your journey around, around this concept? A few things. I think the first one that, that struck me was just like culture, diversity and inclusion requires conscious effort. <laughs> and it's not something that will just happen naturally. It's something that you need to invest in. You need to create um, and you need to shape. The second thing that we were learning, because thankfully in Grab, we have a fairly diverse organization already. Um, I think at last count, we probably have something like 58 nationalities working in Grab, uh, even though we are, we're really based out of Southeast Asia. And the thing that we, we learned is, even as we're driving for diversity, what is just as, if not more important, than in the end creates the environment for even more diversity is inclusion, where you need to create an environment where the 58 nationalities working in Grab feel included. Because if, if they don't feel like Grab is a place that is welcoming of them, that they are included, they are respected for who they are, for their values, for, for what they can bring, then they're not going to stay for long. They're not going to speak well of, of Grab and the, the environment around diversity to others who might want to join Grab. And, and that harms diversity. So even as we're working around creating more diversity, we, we needed to just remind ourselves, never forget about inclusion, because inclusion is the glue that keeps that diverse workforce together and that, that makes sure that that diversity in the workforce can sustain over time. It sounds so simple, but for us, there's a real learning um, that, hey, it's not just diversity, it's, it's, it's diversity and inclusion. And... You'll notice I talk about the third pillar around engagement and inclusion, and that's purposeful. For us, we want to tie that all together. Um, it's not about driving DNI as its own thing, um, but it's how do we build diversity and inclusion into everything that we do, into the everyday experiences as we think about engaging our grabbers, right? Every single experience that a grabber has is an opportunity to either create inclusion or not. How do we do that? How do we make sure we think from that lens that every single experience is one that is positive towards inclusion that therefore then creates greater opportunity for diversity? So that, that's how we're thinking about it. Any, any like tips or somebody maybe is listening to this thinking we'd like to do more? Is there any um, something actionable that they can think about that you've learned along the way? We're still very early in this journey, and so mm -hmm. we're still learning so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think on this one, we probably have a lot more to learn from others. I think the one thing that I found helpful that, that I've learned personally in this journey is you need everyone to drive inclusion. And, and actually, I would expand that. You need everyone to drive culture. Culture is not something that, that can be owned by the people in organizational development team in Grab. It's not one that can just be owned by the overall people operations team at Grab. It's one that requires every single person. And so the approach that we're taking is how do we, how do we get every team member, every team leader, every leader to think and drive inclusive uh, behaviors, to to lead inclusive teams, to create that environment of inclusion, because it's not something that we can create kind of top down. It's one that requires that democratic effort. 
Uh, and that's been, been a, a big learning for us and something that we're working hard on. I totally agree with what Corn is saying here. Culture is not something that somebody simply bestows upon us. We all play a role in culture. If you're frustrated with an organization and its culture and you choose to do nothing, which we all do it sometimes, that's fine. But ultimately, that is your contribution to the culture. Culture is always happening and we can either be passive or active in the process. That said, I think it's important to note that within hierarchical cultures, much like in most of our workplaces, the higher one sits within the organization, the more influence and impact they can have over the culture at large. Corn's working with organizations like Sprouta, Vega Factor, and CultureAmp to drive some of the most bold and systemic changes that I've seen. So I wanted to ask him what his advice would be for other leaders, but also for employees who want to be bold and really lean into helping develop intentional and healthy organizational culture. A lot of times, actually, to be bold requires help, support from others. I'll share a story about courage just to highlight the point that I think all of us have courage. Sometimes what it takes is that spark to get that going. And the story actually is about how I joined Grab and how I decided to, to leave mm. uh, uh, my consulting career behind and, and take a leap into a very different place. And actually the courage to leave, because sometimes, as you pointed out, Craig, inertia is a very powerful force and that requires courage to, to break free from. And the story is that I had just become a father. My, my son, Lucas, I was three weeks old at that time. And as a consultant, I was serving a lot of clients overseas, flying a lot. And most of my week would be spent outside of Singapore, where my wife and my child were. And so I remember on this Saturday morning, flying back home from Hong Kong. And as I entered the door, my, my son was crying and was being carried by our nanny as my wife was getting some rest. And so I, I put down my luggage, I walked over, I spoke to the nanny, and I asked to carry my son. She handed him over to me, and he starts bailing, like really crying, crying way harder than he was before. And, and my nanny gives me the best feedback I've ever received in my life. She looks at me, and she speaks in, in Mandarin. She says, your son doesn't recognize you. And in that moment, that's what it took to spark the courage to say, I need to change something. So that afternoon after my wife woke up, I, I spoke with her. I told her I decided to, to leave McKinsey. I was going to find something else that didn't require me to continue with this travel. And something that gave me the opportunity, the chance to, to spend more time with my son so that my son and I would recognize each other. <laughs> the point of, uh, of that story was just to highlight that I think all of us have courage. A lot of times it just requires that support, that spark, something to to trigger that courage and allow it to emerge and especially for organizations i think that's what we need to think a lot about how do we how do we create that environment how do we create that space where people can feel like that courage will be recognized that when they do something courageous they will be celebrated that it will not have negative consequences when they try something and how do we create that space where we are sparking that courage. Right? We're sparking that courage to experiment. We're sparking that courage to, to speak up, to try something new. That, I think, for me, was a big mm -hmm. learning and a big insight around, around courage. I love that story. And a lot of that, I think, really speaks to kind of leaders and what we need to create in the workplace and how we have to make it safer and how we have to... I, I judge at some level you had enough security that you can make that move. But regardless of that, it's this idea of safety, right? Why you could do what you did, why something, you know, so for our leaders, making it safe, encouraging those sparks. If I was a junior employee and I came to you and I said, I, you know, I see some things, right? I'm, I'm, you know, what would, would you change what you would say to a junior employee around their, their place in this and trying to make change happen? The most important thing I think is I never want that employee or that team member who's sharing that with me to feel dejected, to feel rejected. Because that's the worst. The, the way I think about it is if that person had a, had a great idea, in their mind, a wonderful idea, and they bring it to you, that takes courage. If you smack that idea down just immediately, they're never going to come back to you with an idea again. Right? For me personally, I, I remind myself of that when the idea comes, always be encouraging. Mm -hmm. And then work through that idea with them. Help them think through that idea. Help them think about how to experiment with that idea. Where might 
be a safe place for them to go go test it out. How might they break it down into into baby steps to implement that idea or explain to them why actually we might have tried it? What context was around around that idea that we've tried before? Why it didn't work or why it, it worked partially and, and why the pivot from there since? Help them think through all of that. That I think is important. It's being being that co-conspirator in a way with them around their ideas. As you're talking, I have I'm picturing 18 year old corn in front of your uh, uh, your warrant officer, and there you were nervous and had the courage to do that. But how he responded was not exactly yeah. how you expected, and how much of an impact that had. I'm also thinking as I'm asking you the same question, I'm thinking to myself, what would I say? And I think what came up for me if I was if you know in a position where somebody came to me and said maybe they were having a hard time with the courage. I think the first thing would be to tease out, you know, a lot of us carry fears. My judgment is oftentimes we carry our own, our own fears and that if we could tease that out and say, is that fear real? Is something really going to hurt? And if we find out that in our organization, something is really dangerous and not safe, then I think as a leader, then it's our turn to be bold. I have to go figure that out. But oftentimes I think the best support you can give so many employees is to help them support them and oftentimes realize that that fear is scary, but we got your back. You're not in danger. Let's go be bold. Almost like the gift you were given. Absolutely. And I, I think, Craig, you brought up such a great point that a lot of times they will try and hide their fear with a brave front, a brave face. Mm-hmm. And a part of that, that leadership is giving space to that fear, calling it out, saying, hey, you sound nervous about this or you seem really anxious and, and giving them the space and letting them know that it's okay for them to share about it. In exactly the same conversation I had last night, uh, that same leader shared with me that they, they have a saying in their, their traditional mother tongue that once a fear is shared, you only bear half, right? You only bear half? Yeah. When, once you share that with someone else, then you only bear half that fear or that anxiety. And I thought that was such a great reminder. So I think that's on us as leaders to to call it out, to give a voice to it, allow them to speak about it freely. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. And these conversations with leaders, this kind of is a constant theme. So I think it's a call to action to all of us that we've been down the path. We know this. We can let people struggle for extra years. We can get in there and really support them early and help speed up that journey for them. I mean, everybody has to be on their journey, but that, you know, that we can help speed those journeys up and, and remove some of those, those barriers that don't need to be there. Um, it sounds like that's something that, that you do. And it um, something that also came up that I heard along the way, which sounds like these kinds of moments when people are coming up or sharing these things are moments that matter. I've heard you talk about that. That's something that, yeah, that's important to you. Do you want to share more with the audience just about this idea of the moments that matter and what you, how you think about this? Absolutely. So if I play back to when we were talking about engagement and one of the things we said around engagement was deepening the bonds between grabbers as well as deepening the bonds between grab and grabbers. And one pivotal way to do that is by tapping into the moments that matter. Um, because the bonds come from emotions and emotions will come from the moments that matter to that person. And the question that, that the team and I and we've been wrestling with is what are the moments that matter? What are some moments that matter to our graphics and what can we do about those moments? So I'll give you an example of, of where this went well. When I first joined Grab, I was a very new father and my first Father's Day. I remember walking by my desk after a meeting and there was this little brownie uh, that was left on, on my desk with a card that said, Happy Father's Day, Cornelius. Thank you for all the sacrifices from Grab. And that was a moment that mattered as a new father trying to figure out how to, how to make fatherhood work with work. Just that appreciation in that moment, that, that recognition that it's tough, that being a father and trying to be do good work is tough. And as you said, there are trade-offs. And so just that recognition in that moment, that was emotional. And emotions create bonds. And that stuck with me even till now, as you can see. And the question is, how do we do more of that? How do we do that at scale? I'll give you another example that we're still working through. And other companies might be practicing the same thing. In Grab, we, we sometimes celebrate what we call grabversaries, right? Mm-hmm. The anniversaries of someone joining a, a, an organization. And in the past, we used to give that person a plaque at, that said one year, two years, three years, et cetera. And that's great to recognize the, the tenure, but we can do so much more around it, making that 
a special moment. Getting a plaque doesn't create much emotion. Imagine the following, getting the plaque, well, okay, thank you, versus receiving the plaque with a written note from the team about the difference you've made to them, mm -hmm. the difference you've made to grab over that year. That's gonna mean so much more because it's personal. It's about you, it's about the difference you've made. Then that creates emotion, that deepens the bonds between you and the team, between the team members between you and Grab, because it's about the impact you've made at Grab, then you start to build those bonds. Then you start to create emotions. So that that's the approach. How, how What are these moments that really matter, right? Whether it's the Grabversaries, whether it's becoming a parent for the first time, whether it's a promotion, whether it's an internal shift to a new role, whether it's moving house. And the, the crazy thing is, especially with the data that organizations collect today, we have all of that information at our fingertips. We just don't do anything with them yet. Right? No, we don't do enough with them. And that's, I think, where, where we could do so much more. How do we use information on these moments, figure out what are the most important ones, and then what can we do to create real emotional bonds mm -hmm. in that moment that shift the relationship from one that is transactional to one that is something a lot deeper? Human. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're talking and the thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is this idea of the things we get hung up in our organizations that seem complicated and are complicated. But sometimes when you stop and think, there's a part of us, we know how to be human. We've, we've complicated this. We've pushed away. If somebody in our life had a moment that matters, we know what to do. How do we lose it? Or how can we build it in? Like, we, it's not as hard. I think it just takes a shift of mindset. I think we've been conditioned in our workplaces to behave a certain way. And this is where we all have to step up to be active, to unconditioned, to unlearn, because what you're saying, and there's just so much in this conversation, it just sounds so human. And we know how to be human. Yeah, because we are human. Because that's, <laughs> that's how, how we would like to be treated. Right? We, we know what we would love for ourselves, what would bring out the best for ourselves, but somehow we're not able to try and create that at scale, especially. And I think that's, that's the work that's set out for us. Mm -hmm. And I think for humans, it's it's oftentimes hard to give when you don't think you're getting, but that kind of goes back to this, be the change you want to see in the world. That's, you know, this idea of when you don't have give, you know, that's really what it comes down to. And there's a strange thing that happens when you do that, but it's very difficult to do if you don't feel like your needs are getting met to go meet yeah. somebody else's needs. And if we're going to unpack this and change it, it's going to take the boldness to go give what you don't think you're getting and I judge that when that happens, all of a sudden things start to become reciprocal in the world. And that's the solution. Hmm. I'm loving this conversation. I just want to ask you a little bit. I mean, you work in the world of the gig economy world, right? And, you, um, and I just, I, my thing here is empathy in the gig economy. And the truth is, I don't know exactly what I'm asking. I don't work in the gig economy. I think that we've seen that it can, it can be great, but it can also be a lot and ask a lot of people. So I just wanted to get your take on building a healthy workforce when there's a gig economy involved? It is such a simple but tough question mm. <laughs> because there, there's so many sides to, to it and there are so many angles to looking at the gig economy. If I think about Grab and the economy that we are trying to build in a way, there, there is one part of the gig economy that would be our driver partners, for example, right? people who, who would ferry you around. On another side, there are also our merchant partners who you could argue are also part of that gig economy, especially in a time of COVID. There are a lot more, especially in Southeast Asia where we operate, there are a lot more mom and pop merchants um, who have started a, maybe a, a food business from scratch, right? based out of their homes where, where they might bake some cookies, get it delivered to, to a consumer. That's another side of the gig economy. And I think the challenge, the biggest challenge is in making sure that the gig economy is sustainable for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sustainable in every single way. Sustainable in the well-being of, of the partners. Sustainable in the financial stability or, or, or income that they can earn uh, through the economy over time. That sustainability, that concept of making sure it's sustainable for everyone is what we aspire to and that's what we're working on. And that's what we think of the most. How do we make sure that it's sustainable? Because the easiest thing you could do is you could jack up the prices, give drivers a huge heyday for a week. But then as consumers start dropping off because the price just gets too high and too ridiculous, 
that's not sustainable, mm-hmm. right? And, and so it doesn't help to give them like a ginormous fish for one week and then there's no more fish left the week after. Yeah. That for us is, is the core of the equation we're trying to solve. How do we build sustainability in this economy, in this ecosystem, so that everyone wins in the long term, that we kind of, we want to be the tide that lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Everyone grows together, right? Uh, uh, everyone's well-being Im- improves and increases. Um, that's the approach we've, we've been trying to take and that we're working on. Man, I hope we get to work together. I hope we get to do, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm really enjoying our conversation and the way you think. And it's, it's really refreshing to know that leaders like you are, you know, in a, in a, such a high level of influence over employee experience at companies like that. And that we get to amplify voices like yours. We need, we need to hear this. We need more of it. And it's, it's real and it's working. Um, all right. This is the last question, which is this season we're ending with, to each of our guests, a big question on their minds. I think it's an interesting, I think it's on a couple levels, it shows that nobody has the answers and we're all thinking about something. I think it's also an opportunity for our audience to, to think about that. And, uh, you know, I get to take a little stab at it as well. So Corn, what is your big question when it comes to all this? It's one that, that's been weighing on my mind a lot, especially as, as you hear about people debating, asking questions around, hey, should that be a chief culture officer, right? Is the CEO the chief culture officer? The question that's, that's been bugging me the most is actually the opposite is, how do we make every single employee the chief culture officer? How do we make every single employee feel ownership, feel like they can make change, positive change around the culture? That they are all guardians, custodians, shapers of the culture that we were part of. That for me is is the question that's on my mind, and that's a question that I'd, I'd love to get everyone's help thinking through. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, what comes to mind for me when you're asking that question is, I think it's, I think it's something that's really easy to say and to want, but to really do that means letting go from a leadership perspective. And I think the problem we get into is we you say that sort of thing, but are you really willing to back it up? You know, it's to, to basically say everybody here is part of the culture. But are we backing it up when someone brings something to our attention or makes a point and are we walking the walk? Because I think it's very easy to get back into the hierarchies and the so people don't feel like they have a voice, don't feel like they have a say, even though we're saying it. So I think it's almost like that. It's it's like a deep value thing. I mean, if that's really what it is, it almost has to be a value and it has to be seen in action. And we have to call out those moments where people are stepping up and doing that. You know, I, I used to work in recognition and rewards and there's a saying, you know, what gets recognized gets repeated and how you can use re- your rewards program and recognition to really drive your values through behaviors. That's what, that's what comes up for me. It's, it's one of those things that's easy to say. It's easy. We all want it, but are we really willing to give up power or ability to somebody else to allow that to happen? And that's a deep, tricky thing. Corn, wow, this was, I knew this time would fly. I'm so grateful that Culture Amp partners with with you. I mean, it, it makes me really proud that we're working with companies like you and we need to keep working to amplify, you know, people like you, voices like you and you too, me too, all of us, because we need it more now than ever. And we're at, we're at an inflection point where I think we can drive a lot of change uh, as the world starts to shift. And we need to drive a lot of change. We do, we do. And, yeah. and this is the moment, so... Thanks. I really appreciate it. Uh, what, a, what a great conversation. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And we're the founders of Sprouter. Sprouter is a global ecosystem of experts and solution providers who can help you solve your most complex challenges in people, performance, and culture. We know change isn't always easy. We want to offer you a 30-minute discovery course so you can share some of your challenges, ideas, and insights. We create a safe and productive thinking space to help you gain clarity, identify priorities, and plan your next steps. So let's start a conversation. Head to sprouter.com.